Welcome, everyone, back to the show. This is Carter Clement from Children's Hospital in beautiful but very cold uptown New Orleans right now, and I am joined by... Oh, this is uh, Craig Lauer from Vanderbilt Children's Hospital. Even colder in Nashville, Tennessee. You know, That's honestly, right. people would, would laugh at us here. It's it's just below freezing. It's like 31 degrees, and all the schools in the city are canceled, and everyone thinks their cars are going to, like, skid off the road. Um, but, you know, like a lot of places in the country, we're, we're home with the kids right now with... Uh, minimal activity the hospital and we are joined from across the pond today by mr dan perry dan how are you i'm good thank you so schools here were also canceled yesterday because of because of snow but it doesn't look like it at the moment no i'm looking at a beautiful beach out of out of your window and uh i'm imagining it's like 80 degrees fahrenheit and sunny out there i'm sure that is not the case uh no i'll, I'll leave you believing that <laughs> Um, well, thank you for joining us. We haven't had that many international shows. We always try to. It throws our, our scheduling off. So uh, instead of our usual 8 p.m. recording, it is 6 a.m. in the States in uh, Central Time. So we've we've traded the cocktails for coffee this morning, but uh, we're going to make it happen. So, Dan, we like to start off with just getting to know you a little bit. We're going to get into all of your very impressive research work, but let's start off with just sort of your clinical practice and your subspecialty. Sure. So I work at uh, I work at Alder Hay Children's Hospital, which is in Liverpool in England. My clinical practice is broadly hips, so I do a lot of baby hip stuff, and I do trauma. I do a lot of Perthes disease stuff as well. So that's kind of broadly what I do. And then I wanted to ask, because I'm a simple American, what your favorite football club is. But you mentioned that that's maybe not totally your thing. So should I be asking about another sport? Should I be asking about cricket? I'm not a massive, massive football fan. If if any, if you had to force me, it's going to be Liverpool because that's the kind of team that I drive past every morning on the way into into to the office. But um, yeah, I'm not I'm not a massive not a massive kind of sports sports fan day to day. All right, fair enough. Uh, well, root 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 for the home team. And now, uh, what about your? You know, I know this could be a long story, but just briefly, you are a uh, NIHR research professor. So, what's your career path been like to that kind of uh, practice? Yeah, so I, so it is a bit funny. I spend so my whole salary is now funded for research. So I do my clinical practice kind of like I, I guess a little bit as a hobby nowadays. I mean, it's, it's a bit more than a hobby, but but it's kind of feels a bit like that sometimes. So I started off in normal training in the UK, and during my registrar, so resident training, I was able to take some time out and do a, a PhD. So I did a PhD in epidemiology and looked at the epidemiology of Perthes disease. Um, which was really fun. I learned some really cool methods. So I learned lots of kind of statistical techniques. I did some stats exams and stuff at the time and uh, and kind of became a, a bit of a geek, I guess. And from that, once I finished my PhD, so, so the National Institute of Health Research in the UK was kind of growing at that time. So I took a lecture job down in Warwick University, where I kind of started learning about how to do trials from a guy called Matt Costa, um, who's a trauma trialist. Uh, then I went off to do my fellowship at SickKids in Toronto, and then I came back to a, a job in the UK, which was essentially a research job. And then things have kind of just grown within NIHR, so within the National Institute for Health Research. Uh, and, and, so, and how many of these trials are you involved in now? Probably, I don't, I don't know offhand. There's probably about nine or ten trials that I do at the moment, which are big multi-centre uh, trials covering a whole range of different things. And, and it started out, it started out in a very logical way. So. 
initially we did a big observational study called BOSS, which like, I guess, many North American centers, they, they, they hadn't done a lot of multi-center research. So initially we said, look, you know, we're not going to jump in and do a trial. Let's do a really simple, big observational cohort study. So we did this big observational cohort study and we started off getting centers on board. And in the end, we got 143 centers recruiting in an observational study, recruiting cases of perthase disease and slipped epiphysis. And doing that, we built up a computer system, which kind of collected the data, which was kind of powered using REDCap, but we built some extra bits around that. And then following that, we, we started doing a really simple trial. So we did a really simple trial about torus fractures, so buccal fractures of the wrist, which frankly, no one cares about, but it was the perfect first trial because no one cared about it. Uh, and therefore, people weren't passionate enough to really have a strong opinion. So we did that trial, which was great. And that got into the Lancet and that that kind of was a really big thing. And then following that, we've just got more and more complicated, throwing in more and more difficult trials. And uh, yeah, we're at a good stage now where we've got this kind of machine that runs within the UK. Yeah, congrats on building that. Really impressive. I'm excited when I get 143 patients in a study. So 143 centers is, is really pretty mind-blowing. I'm curious what your formal position is like related to these trials. I know you're an NIHR research professor, but then also a consultant children's orthopedist at your hospital. Sort of what does that uh, research position look like? Who do you work for in that position in your sort of day-to-day -day job? Yeah, so I work for the university. So so I work for the university and then the trust kind of buy back a little bit of my time. And I, I, I love my clinical work because it keeps me current and I love doing it. But more and more the research, I guess, encroaches on my clinical practice. And so my Monday to Wednesday are always research nowadays. And my Thursdays and Fridays are generally clinical, but not always. And so my last question before we get into that research, is your day-to-day -day work at the hospital typically interrupted by tea time? And if so, what do you prefer to have at tea time? Um, just a, a nice cup of English tea like, like I've got here now. <laughs> and the first article I want to get into was one I really enjoyed reading that you published late last year, November 2023, in uh, the open access format of Bone and Joint Journal. It was called Radiological Assessment of Hip Disease in Children with CP. And this is a little se separate from these big trials you're working on, and we will get to those. But uh, I just wanted to hear a little bit about sort of what was the research team that you put together for this and what you guys found. So this was actually one of my MPhil students. So, so we, we, I've got a team of researchers that work alongside me, and one of my MPhil students needed a project. And so the reason we actually did this, so... So whenever we, whenever we're doing whenever we're doing bigger studies, we need lots of background studies in order to prove what we're doing is is the right thing. Uh, and I've actually got a group that I work with that do some artificial intelligence stuff as well. And the AI guys were building a model and now built a model which which can interpret lots of different things on radiographs for us. So the idea is in the UK we're going to embed that the the AI tool into our national data collection for um, collecting all of the routine hip outcomes in cerebral palsy. So one of the things we needed to do firstly was prove that the AI model was going to be able to collect everything we need. Uh, and therefore, we, we set about a process whereby uh, we went through a Delphi technique, um, so, so um, a formalized survey-based technique, if you like, to highlight all of the things that have been recorded in the literature before regarding the, the outcomes of cerebral palsy. And then we, we threw all those different outcomes to, to various different people uh, and said, look, how important is this? How important isn't it? Surprise, surprise, Rhymer's migration percentage was by far the most important thing. And then there was 
uh, a process about if there was anything else we should add to add further detail. There was lots of discussion around neck shaft angles, head shaft angles, and things like that. And in the end, we arrived at the Arima's migration percentage and a, and a head shaft angle was the, the most important things uh, and the standard things that we should always report whenever we're doing these studies because they, they make studies comparable and therefore the AI tool at least needs to be able to collect those. I think that's awesome. I, you know, I really like the results. I might have even sort of told you that that's what I thought should be true, but I like that you guys went about proving it. So what do you think is sort of the next step for that uh, AI effort? Uh, so we're actually, any day, I'm hoping it was going to be today, but we're the, we've just applied for one and a half million pounds uh, grant from the NHR in the UK to, to actually embed the tool within the database. And what that will mean, so at the moment we get about 10% of patients in the UK, so children with cerebral palsy, we get 10% of their data uploaded to the system. If we embed it in the way we want, then it will just be a click of a button and we'll routinely embed all of the data from the PAC system straight into the national database, um, which would be really cool because then we can set all sorts of parameters around kind of identifying early early migration and things like that. And that means people participating in one of the trials that you've organized, they upload their x-rays and then the AI will read those x-rays and, and store the measurements or, or am I so oversimplifying already- that? No, so, so it's actually even simpler than that, to be honest. Um, so we've, we've already got a system called CPIPS. So CPIPS is a, a system in the UK. Uh, they've got it in Scandinavian countries as well, whereby there's already a national um, system, a national surveillance system for children with cerebral palsy. And so physiotherapists and other uh, therapists and sometimes the surgeons will, will see children with cerebral palsy, depending on their GMFCS level, at different intervals. And so it may say, well, at this time point, they routinely need a hip X-ray. And that hip X-ray, if you're fulfilling the guidelines correctly, you'll you'll automatically upload the results of that hip X-ray to the to the national database, and that should be happening everywhere. There's national guidelines in the in the UK from the NHS which say, look, look, this should be happening if we're delivering the best care to all children. But what the AI tool will be is it will actually be embedded into the PAC system, so so it will be like an app in the PAC system. So literally, when you see that kid, all you'll do is click a button. It will make the measurements, and it it will do the upload for you. So there'll be no there'll be no problem. Is the is the dream, Dan? This is Craig. Um, what percentage of the CP population who's recommended to have you know these surveillance guidelines actually gets surveyed at those times? How effective is your system of doing that? I would say in the United States we're largely ineffective. There've been a lot of people who promote um, guidelines, but because it's not a nationalized system and we have people slip through the cracks. I routinely see, you know, new CP patients who've never been surveyed, and I think that's a big drawback. So I'm curious when it when it is standardized, what do you guys, what, what's your success at surveying those patients? So the the success in Scotland, so moving a little bit away from where we are now, but the success rate in Scotland is is fantastic. I can't put the exact numbers, but the vast, vast, vast majority of kids with cerebral palsy uh, are in the system, uh, and they have the surveillance at all the fixed time points in England. It's been rolling out after Scotland, so it's been rolling out over the last few years, and there's there's some really influential people um, uh, around England that are really, really trying to drive that. And uh, and part of we, we can do it partly because we've got this nationalised system. We've also got, uh, I guess, a system of carrots and sticks. So so there's a system of system whereby people are highlighted if they're failing in particular areas. And so there's national bodies like the National Institute for Clinical Excellence, which which really offers sticks to say, look, you're not meeting these guidelines. You're a bad, you're a bad hospital. And how are you going to make this better? And so sometimes they're financial drivers as well. Uh, and so there are drivers which the, the NHS has to to try and really 
make that so. But it always needs the person to, it always needs people and individuals to kind of to drive the mission. And that's what we've got, you know, in the UK and in Scotland and, and also in England. But it also has to be easy for the clinicians. So, so the upload process, the, the you know, completing the forms has to be easy. And that's, I guess that's one of the things we're hoping to do for, through the AI. You know, it's taken a bit longer to roll it in England, but if we make it really super easy, then it should be, it should be a lot easier, right? Yeah, enabling technology to do that tough work for you. Mm. Yeah, super exciting. Well, let's move on to some other exciting stuff you're involved with. So I just want to go through a few of these studies. We could obviously talk about your ongoing trials all day. First of all, I should say they all have excellent acronyms, as as we know is mandatory for a successful trial. Yeah, and I, and I do that. know... I, I want to hear more about that process, too, when we get into it. <laughs> Well, I, I was going to say, I, I, you know, watching some of your other stuff on, online, I know that you guys, you really put a emphasis on branding and how important it is to, you know, look and sound sort of sleek and polished for the patients, for the doctors involved and everything like that. But with that said, why don't we start with the science trial? Can you tell us what the acronym's about, what the impetus and the design of the trial is and that sort of stuff? Okay, so so after we did that, after we did that study about torus fractures, which was called FORCE, um, we moved on to science. And so science was the first, I guess, the first big trial because it's about medial of the condyle fractures. And so it was the first big trial because it was a trial that people actually care about. And there's all sorts of passionate debate in the trauma meetings around whether displaced medial epicondyle should be fixed or not fixed. And so science stands for surgery or casts for injuries of the epicondyle in children's elbows, which is my favorite acronym possibly to date. Um, and so we're, we've randomized patients around the UK. In fact, we've finished recruitment now. So we've randomized 334 children at about 75 centers in the UK and also in a few centers in Australia and New Zealand. And we've randomized them between um, operative fixation or non-operative treatment. Uh, we finished our, our recruitment in September. So our primary outcome is a one-year promise. Um, and so we'll get the final outcome in September this year. And we'll be able to publish the paper a few months after that. And, you know, if you had to hypothesize what it's going to show, what do you expect? Uh, I suspect it will be no difference, if, if I'm honest, which is still a huge result. You know, showing no difference in that sort of thing is, is fantastic. Absolutely. Um, you know, well-designed trial negative uh, findings are going to be very meaningful. And sounds like you've set up all of these to, to be able to show meaningful negative results, if that's what they uh, shake out to be. Yeah. What about the craft study? So the craft study is where we got even harder and we started upsetting people. And so, so the craft study um, looks at uh, a displaced radius fractures. So this kind of came from the Crawford Hawaii stuff about treating bayonet opposition. So, um, so off-ended radius fractures, uh, treating them non-operatively and, and waiting for the arm to remodel and get better. Uh, it was the trial that everyone told me was impossible. No one would randomize. Patients will never randomize. Our patients won't won't sign up to that trial. It's it's absolutely absurd. Um, was kind of what I got told. But actually, what we're actually talking about is the surgeons don't want to do that because patients on the whole are like, well, actually, I'm pretty cool about not going to theatre or not going to the operating theatre because, uh, you know, that's a big intervention and I certainly don't want to play or cuts or anything else, you know, my wrist. So the craft study is about randomising children between uh, non-operative care, so that means putting a nice plaster on in the ED versus taking them to the operating theatre or, or reducing them under sedation so anatomically reducing them and fixing them if and however you may want to do that. Random 696 and we need 750. And same question, what do you hypothesize you're going to end up finding in this study? 
So, so I don't know, actually. Um, I'm a bit more on the fence about this one. Um, so our primary outcome is, is function at three months. We also measure the parental assessment of um, the appearance of the limb at lots of time points. And we, we follow all the kids up to one year um, and then extend the follow up to three years. But, but kind of one year is when we're going to report it based on three month primary outcome be the main thing. I, I don't know. I, a lot of people will, would expect there to be no difference. And it's a really, it's a really well powered study to show no difference because it's a non-inferiority study, which is why the, the sample size is so much bigger than in science, because it's, it's actually quite a lot harder to prove non-inferiority. Now, how many centers are you working across in that kind of study where you're going for 700 plus patients? So that one's about 55 centers and it's just UK. And when and where should we look for that publication, do you think? That is going to be, uh, so we're going to finish recruitment in May this year, hopefully. May next year, we'll, we'll have the result. And so I guess it's going to be it's going to be in the fall and next year. And it's going to be, all of these trials, we kind of expect and anticipate they're going to be in the Lancet, the New England Journal, or, or one of the, the super big journals, because, you know, we, we have a whole team of people like, it's not just me, I've got a full trials team that deliver all of this for us. And they're based primarily at the University of Oxford, where, where I run all my studies from. And they, they make sure that the science is absolutely amazing. Uh, yeah, we could probably talk for a whole nother hour about what it takes to build that team to do that kind of high-level research. That's fantastic. Now, I've gotten a little bit out of order here because you already re referenced the force study. But on the other hand, we do have some results we could talk about. So will you give us the, sort of the rundown on what that looked like? So the fourth study was the, the first kind of the easy study. Uh, and we, we kicked it all off and we started people randomizing. We built a really neat randomization system. So again, it's based on RedCap, but it's but we, we I've got a really cool IT guy that's built quite a lot around RedCap to make it really super easy. The main thing about Force is we set up this system where we online consent all of our patients. The system automatically sends all of the patients the appropriate primary outcome measures, all of the all of the secondary outcome measures. It chases all the patients at the right time points. So really, we sit back, recruit the patients on an iPad, and then just sit back and wait for the results. And so in that study, we randomized kids between the offer of a bandage uh, for, a, for a, a buckle fracture, for a torus fracture of the wrist, and a, a splint, so a, a cast or splint, or whatever you do now. And the reason we did an offer of a bandage um, was because initially, the initial plan was to do nothing. So we were going to compare nothing with a cast or whatever we do now. But patients and their families, we spoke to them, and they, they said, look, we're not prepared to accept nothing. Um, we need at least a bandage. So so we said, okay, fine. So here's a bandage, take it home, wear it, you know, sleep with it. I don't care what you do with the bandage, just have a bandage. And the results was there was there was no difference at all. Their pain scores were absolutely identical at every single time point. Uh, there was no difference in complications. We recruited we recruited 900 and something patients in the end to that that study. And it went on, went on for 23 centres, I think, in the UK. Um, so it was a perfect introduction for trials for our group. Now, in a study like that, I know you've, You've attracted millions of pounds of research support. What what does the support look like for a center participating with you in a trial like that? Are you uh, distributing funds to support a full-time research assistant or a part-time research assistant at each of those participating centers? I think one of the great things and one of the reasons we can deliver it so well in the in the NHS is, is something called NIHR, so the National Institute of Health Research. And it's a bit like NIH, but it's got some other bits which make it a, a bit more cool, um, in my opinion. Um, so every single hospital in the UK that's part of the NHS, which is the vast, vast, vast majority, um, will all have research nurses already employed sitting there waiting to recruit to your study. And so they'll all be employed by NHR. And so then I'll apply for separate funding from NHR. So 
So for the force study, it costs NIHR about a million dollars. And the million dollars will pay for all of my trial staff. So it'll pay for my statistician. It'll pay for some of my time. It'll pay for my trial manager's time, my trial manager assistant's time, um, health economics person, kind of the, the whole team it will pay for. But it doesn't really pay for anything at the site. So the, the study will then be on the NHR portfolio. And then all of the hospitals around the country will say, OK, well, there's a new study on the NHR portfolio. We want to recruit to that because the more patients we recruit to that, the more we're showing our um, we, we kind of collect points, I guess, if you like. So we collect points of how many patients we recruit. And that then goes against our next year's income to show what a good centre we are. And, and if we're if we're a centre that recruits lots of patients, then our research team will grow because NHL will direct more money in that direction, which is broadly how it works. Which is really sort of fun and exciting to think about with the right research infrastructure for a million dollars, which in the healthcare world, unfortunately, it's not that much. You can perform this kind of high-level, Lancet-level, uh, randomized trial. It's, it's really something. Yeah, it's, it's really cool. Yeah, and, and it is about growing because once you've got the research, it's really quite hard at first because the research nurses are all doing cardiology or all doing something which which isn't kids' orthopedics. And so you have to kind of suck them into kids' orthopedics. But once they're there, they kind of start liking it, and then they start building a team around kids' orthopedics. And so then the pressure is to keep it, you know, keep growing it, keep keep maintaining that that sort of thing. And now we're, you know, now we've got loads of studies and and, and it's really cool. But there is that constant pressure now. So so fortunately we've grown the number of chief investigators to to really keep that going. So before you came along with your PhD in children's orthopedics, were these NIHR research offices and dedicated staff members doing any orthopedic trials in the UK, or did you really have to get that ball rolling? I, I don't think they were really doing there may have been the odd little thing here and there but there, there were certainly no big coordinated network and it's you know it's not just me there's a there's a whole massive group of us within the british society of children's orthopedics that have got together and you know really fought to do this and so um so i'm really grateful to all of those yeah really great momentum all right next up the basis study and I, i'll give the disclaimer i know you are not a pediatric spine surgeon yourself but you do have the uh, trial skills to be involved in organizing this kind of study so can you tell us a little bit about the basis trial Sure. So the basis study um, uh, is run by uh, a spine surgeon. So in the UK, peds orthopods don't don't tend to do spine. It tends to be the spine surgeons that do spine. So so Ashley Cole is a is a spine surgeon in Sheffield, and he wanted to deliver this trial, which is a trial of night bracing versus conventional bracing for kids with scoliosis. Um, and so he reached out to me as someone that's started kind of doing trials, and we we wrote this trial. We got funding. So this. I think this was about two and a half million pounds. This is quite a big trial because it's quite a long trial. So the trial team needs to be in place for a while. Uh, and it's recruiting really well. We've got about 250 patients randomized between the two interventions. We need about 750. And um, yeah, and it's and it's great. And same question. Can you at this point offer a, a hypothesis of what you think you're going to find? Or is it a little too early to call? Uh, so so, so, so the, the, the thing about the data is I don't get access. A high quality trial, we don't have access to any of the data. So I write the trial, or Ashley and I wrote the trial. And beyond that, everything's locked away from us. I don't get a sniff of what's going on other than to be told a patient's been recruited. But I don't see anything on any of the trials. So it's just a pure guesswork. And frankly, because I'm not a spine surgeon, I really don't have a clue. Carter's uh, trying to get a sneak peek in. I knew you would do this, Carter. Got to get behind you, you can't. You can't compromise a high-level uh, researcher like like Dan's integrity here. I don't, I don't well, know what your plan is. For a high-level podcast, I thought maybe you could. <laughs> Divulge a little bit. <laughs> so when um, we get the report, I'll come and tell you. Uh -huh. Can't wait. 
All right, the last trial, I know it wasn't on our original list to discuss, but I couldn't resist because of the name. I want to hear about the trial Odd Socks. Okay, so so Odd Socks is the newest one. It's going to start in spring this year. So we've we've been setting all up in the background. And Odd Socks is about Salter Harris two fractures of the distal tibia. So whether they need to be perfectly reduced and kind of screw fixation to reduce that, uh, reduce that physis, or whether we can accept some deformity. And so it's randomizing between between those two broad interventions, kind of, you know, accepting deformity, a few millimeters deformity, or or, or perfect anatomical reduction um, with, um, you know, plus or minus fixation, however you think it needs to be for perfect anatomical reduction. Uh, we need about 200 patients, I think 198. But it's going to start soon. But there's other trials. There's a, there's a new Perth Ace trial, which is called Op Non-Stop. And that's my favorite new name. Um, and that's going to start in about six months. And what do you think of the the time course of that uh, Perthes trial? I, I assume that's on the longer side. So the Perthes, so the way that we always do it, so the trials generally have got a setup stage between six and nine months, um, because that's how long it takes to set up a trial and write the protocols and get all the database and stuff in place. Uh, and then the recruitment and for that, so we need, uh, again, it's about 215 patients, I think. We need, um, so we've got three years of recruitment built into it. Um, when we did the BOSS study, we know that we, sh- so, so a big observational study in the UK, we know that we can, reach that pretty easily if we get patients on board and get them randomizing uh and then the primary outcome is at three years so the promise the functional score at three years plus radiographs which is about as long as we can push it so so i know that all kids orthopedic surgeons would say well you know for perthes trial we want the outcome at you know at maturity at whatever and i get that but realistically every year i've got a trial open it's costing at least two hundred and fifty thousand pounds and therefore i can't keep these trials open indefinitely we need to we need to have a realistic follow-up period to 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 make them affordable to the funders, and then after that we can have some sort of soft, soft long-term follow-up. But but to keep everyone on board costs an absolute fortune. That that's why we have to limit what we do. Uh, and in terms of what the outcome is going to be, I don't know. I operate loads of perthes disease. It's one of my most common operation. Um, for some reason we see lots and lots of perthes disease in Liverpool, which is where I am. So I've got two perthes cases tomorrow, but I know we've got a very uh, a very skewed population. Do you think the outcomes will be something along the lines of an age cutoff for when you should or should not operate? Oh, sorry. I, I, yeah, so, so that's all. That's all kind of written. I know that. So, um, so we're randomizing children between five and um, uh, five and fifteen years old. Um, we're stratifying based on age. So, so, so we'll make sure there's balance in the group that are five to eight years old and the group that's uh, eight to fifteen years old. So we'll make sure they're balanced to to make sure that there's no. Uh, the randomization isn't broken because we wouldn't want one arm having loads of older kids and the other arm having loads of younger kids because obviously that would break the randomization. And um, and then we're also stratifying by things like natural um, the the initial lateral pillar collapse um, again to try and make sure that randomization isn't broken and things like that. All right. Well, Craig, you got any any other questions before we move on to our next section, stirring the pot? I've got a lot of questions, but I kind of think I'd probably need to go to epidemiology PhD to get them all answered. Um, I guess, Dan, I would like to ask, you know, what what do you think the role is for POSNA and POSNA membership? Um, kind of within the framework of your studies, you know, they're happening and, and our minds are happening across the pond. We're all probably going to benefit from the results because we're going to learn a lot from those. But is there anything that you think that we can be doing to help you or is there going to be or could you highlight some of the efforts uh, on the North American side that, to to kind of weave into your studies uh, to kind of help advance the science forward? 
Yeah, so I, I think I think the whole thing has got to be a team game, and and I think in the UK we've got this awesome team um, that we've kind of built up that, that are delivering these trials, and then increasingly we've reached across to Australia and New Zealand, and they've helped us deliver some of these trials, and that's been a that's been a really great success actually. But we can't do some of it without you guys, and so as we as we get more and more as we move down the trials pipeline, I guess the the disease is going to become more and more rare. That we want the definitive answers to and we're never going to be able to do that as the uk alone or uk australia new zealand we need kind of everyone on board and so getting you guys on board will be hugely hugely helpful and we've tried to we've tried to start that going so i know jay janicki i've worked with him in chicago and for that media of the condor study called science and for the distal radius study which is called craft in the uk we've got the comet study and the drift study funded in the US, and they're, they're basically the same protocol. And so the plan at the moment is to run them as separate trials and then do what's called an IPD meta-analysis at the end. So we'll put all the patients together. So so hopefully we'll recruit our trials beautifully. You'll recruit, you, you'll recruit the North American trials beautifully. And then we'll, we'll report each of the trials separately, but then we'll, we'll pull all the data together at the end and, and, and show an overall effect size. So you have a much tighter uh, confidence interval. So you're, you're better power, basically. But ultimately, in the end, what I'd love to see is NHR, NIH, CIHR, NHMRC in Australia working together to, to say, look, we can't deliver this trial on our own. Let's all throw the money into a single pot and deliver really big international multi-centre trials, which are going to be meaningful and get all the you know, big definitive answers to the really small questions, which, which, which you know, will change the, the lives of our patients. Yeah, that's great. But but I think you know the more and more people that get on board with with the studies in the US, the the drift study, the craft study, uh, the drift study, and the comet study, to really to really get that moving, it w- will be fantastic. The, the difficulty whenever you start trials is there's always loads of hurdles, and like I say in the UK, you have to we had to drag the research nurses away from cardiology, and you know that that was a UK problem, but there'll be many sort of similar problems that you have to overcome in the US when you start off, and things will be slow to get going. Uh, but I think once you've got momentum, that that's that's it. So Posner just needs to get the momentum, own it, work together, and you know it's all about I don't know breaking down egos and stuff like that sometimes. Um, but that's you know that's where your controversies and stuff start, and that's the, the world over. With that said, let's uh, let's stir the pot. Let's get into some controversies. So for this next part of the show, we like to bring up some controversies with no right answer and hear what your right answer is. And so what better place to start than all of these controversies you've already brought up? So for your patients, what is the correct migration percentage for a CP hip to uh, offer surgery? So, so, so this is difficult because I don't do cerebral. I, my, my practice is so narrow, I don't even do cerebral palsy surgery anymore. So, so I'm not going to even answer that, I'm sorry, because uh, I just give it to one of my CP colleagues. They're far clearer right. than all right, I, I withdraw the question. Uh, what what what, uh, what migration index do you refer to your CP colleagues? <laughs> so diagnosis I don't of CP. <laughs> yeah, di- no, absolutely. They, they come into my clinic and I send them straight to CP colleagues because because <laughs> our practice is really split up that much. I, you know, I, I only see baby hips and birthday disease. So if you've got any questions about baby hips and birthday disease, I'm going to take them. I'm bone cysts, but that's it. All right. Well, then uh, I'm afraid you're going to decline my next two questions also, which were about your indications for medial epicondyle surgery and distal oh, no, tibial trauma. trauma. Oh, I'll do, I can do trauma. So. All right. So medial epicondyle, uh, what so, are your indications? So, of course, my absolute indications are if they're incarcerated and, and if they've got you know, but bad nerve symptoms, I think the nerve's somehow trapped. Beyond that, 
so so I haven't seen one for a few months since the trial's been going. The answer's always been just put them in the trial because let the trial decide. Um, now now I'm in a bit of a pickle. I'd probably go down a non-operative route, to be honest, because um, uh, my hunch that the trial's going to show no difference. But But like I say, I don't have access to any of the data. I don't know that. I'm just guessing. Does that change for uh, a throwing athlete, a cricket? Oh, God, I don't know the name of the position. Pitcher? Bowler, right? Bowler? A bowler? So bowler, yeah, yeah. So, um, no, I don't I don't think so. We don't um, – I, I think my, my response is probably universal. We can always we can always try and find kind of tiny excuses to, to fix something, you know, and I, I guess it may be different in, in baseball, which, you know, which is what drives a lot of your practice, I guess. But we don't have that sort of – pitching thing in the uk you know okay and how about those distal tibial salter harris two fractures are you operating on them to anatomically restore the physis or accepting a few millimeters of displacement uh so we generally um operate on them to to restore the physis um of course as soon as the trial starts my answer is going to be put them in the trial all right how about if your six-year-old had a torus fracture bandage or splint or cast oh uh, yeah nothing or- Nothing. Nothing. Okay. Yeah, yeah. Bandage around the head to hide, hide it. <laughs> Blindfold. Uh, okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, what What is the correct way to pronounce the acronym for slipped capital femoral epiphysis? Uh, it's a Sufi. It's a Sufi. You heard it here. Stop saying Skiffy, it, everyone. It's a Sufi. Okay. No, but, but even my trials have actually changed their name to Skiffy now, and I don't really know how that happened. But um, but yeah, but but I generally use Skiffy just 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 because it's easiest to explain to people. <laughs> my, my uh, thank you for coming down for us. Always thinks I'm saying Skippy like the peanut butter, and so that's really frustrating. So I might have to switch to Sufi actually. Yeah, it's much more British. You have you can have that whilst whilst drinking tea. Now, in your opinion, sort of worldwide, what is the highest quality orthopedic research being done uh, across the world mm-hmm. um, in all of orthopedics? Yep. So I've always tried to emulate the trauma guys um, in what we're doing. So the adult trauma guys, mm-hmm. uh, you've got the likes of Matt Costa down in Oxford and you've got the likes of Mo Bandari in, in Hamilton, so McMaster. Uh, and they're the guys that I've always tried to emulate, I guess, um, because, you know, I don't do basic science stuff. I do I do clinical trials, clinical research, and they're the guys leading it. With a similar sort of uh, structure with multi-centered trials enrolling patients for specific questions, is that sort of the approach that you're trying to emulate with their work? Yeah, very much. So, um, yeah, it's very much taken taking the, the same models and, and, right, and then, obviously Mo's is a bit different because it's much bigger international. Uh, Mo's got a much bigger international kind of feel to his trial, so he recruits a lot in India, which which we haven't done yet, but that's uh, perhaps something for the future. And uh, last up, I was told I should ask you, what is more British, apologizing or sarcasm? I'm sorry, I, I really don't understand. <laughs> I'm sorry. <laughs> um, was that both at the same time? That was phenomenal. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> um, uh, probably sarcasm. Sarcasm, <laughs> more British. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, but, but my wife apologizes a huge amount about everything. So, so yeah. So it's uh, individual specific. All right. Yeah, uh, fantastic. Perfect. I think we've settled some controversies here. Let's move on to the lightning round. Craig, do you want to kick us off? And uh, I see a, a blurred face in your background. Is that Lena? Who am I seeing That's back Lena. there? Yeah, my oldest, my six-year-old. She, uh, I told her she'd be famous if she just stood here and held my hand. So here uh-huh. she is, always supportive. All right. Well, uh, Dan, I think you'll like this one. This one um, is a prospective multi-center U.S. trial. The 
question and the title is called, Is There a Rule for Isolated Closed Reduction in the Emergency Department Without Fixation for Displaced Proximal Humerus Fractures in Adolescents? Uh, it's a multi-center group from WashU St. Louis, CHOP, Rady, Children's Colorado, CHLA, and Cincinnati. Our very own uh, Julia Sanders, the middle author on this one, but uh, Puya Hushinzada is the uh, lead and PAI, or sorry, the uh, senior author. Um, they say their purpose was to study and determine the need and success of closed reduction among adolescents with displaced proximal humerus fractures treated non-operatively. Let me actually just pause and ask you guys, is there any role in your practice for a displaced uh, proximal humerus fracture in an adolescent where you tell your residents uh, in the emergency department to try closed reduction? Negative. Carter says no. Carter, we were told to do this sometimes as fellows. We certainly were. Yeah. All I was right. told never to do Dan, it as a resident, and I was told to do it as a fellow. <laughs> uh, never, Dan, you have any thoughts on that? I've never heard issue? of doing that. I've never heard of anyone close reduction in the ER. So we, we did it as residents uh, on occasion. It was kind of sporadic uh, as to why you would do it. Um, but it, our, our indications seem to be those that would otherwise need to go to the OR. Sometimes they would say, oh, give it a shot. And I would say anecdotally, um, there were times when um, you would certainly get something that kind of keys into place and then seems to stay there, even when you bring the arm down from the abductor externally rotated position. Um, somehow the physis and the, or the epiphysis and metaphysis would stay together. So I think that's the question they're getting at is, um, uh, does it actually help to do that? Uh, you know, kind of what's the rate of success and um, is that initial successful reduction maintained? I'll just kind of cut to the chase. Uh, they had 42 fractures enrolled. 23 were treated with what they just uh, ex essentially expectant management. 19 actually had the closed reduction followed by a hanging arm caster sling. And they looked at radiographic alignment and PROs at six weeks and three months. And um, radiographic alignment was similar uh, between the two cohorts and as were the uh, patient-rated outcomes. Uh, the radiographic alignment actually did not seem to change uh, for the closed reduction group between the initial x-rays, the six-week x-rays, and the three-month x-rays, or at least not a statistically significant difference um, and pretty small effect size when you look at the numbers, uh, less than five-degree change, um, which led me to question, you know, it's either that the closed reductions weren't that great or on the majority they didn't seem to hold up. Uh, even though there may be a few in there that um, that maybe you know, as my anecdotal experience kind of suggested, sometimes they seem to to stick. Uh, but as a resident, you never have that long term follow up, and so uh, possibly they'd stick in the ER, and then you see them in a week or two, and they've gone back to their initial displacement. So uh, this group's takeaway was that immobilization without closed reduction should be strongly considered in these patients, and they don't really believe there is a role for this closed reduction in the ER sort of maneuver that uh, sometimes uh, our, our residents are taught. Any uh, any thoughts on that from the group, whether the, the study design or um, or the ultimate results or takeaway? You know, I would sort of expect that, that you probably would lose whatever, you know, it's just so unstable that you probably lose whatever initial reduction you did. But I was surprised to hear that the reduction didn't get better over time because I would think that the hanging arm cast would gradually make the reduction a little bit better over the following weeks. Um, so I'm surprised to hear it wasn't any different at those, uh, you know, after it was healed at that six week mark compared to the initial presentation. 
they made a good effort to try and get, you know, worse fractures, but their inclusion was still just 30 degrees angulation or greater than 50% displacement. And so these are all fractures I would look at and just say, yeah, I'm not going to try and reduce you if it's just that. Now, granted, there could be a 90 degree angulated, 120% displaced one in there. You don't know. And that's one that typically I would say I'm going to take to the OR. But if if someone got it via close reduction and it's stuck and it ended up being better, then um, we would accept that obviously as well. So I, yeah, I, I agree with you, Carter. Um, but I, I think that partially it's that a lot of these fractures probably included are ones that are within a acceptable angulation to start with. And so maybe there isn't any uh, need to perform an intervention. Yeah, I think that's probably the case. So, you know, so much of this remodels even in the, the adolescent group as well. So, you know, it's uh, proximal humor fractures are you know, very, very seldom could our operating theaters. Let's go to uh, another study out of Colorado. The optimal age for surgical management of DDH differs by treatment. Uh, the senior author here is Courtney Selberg. And the authors retrospectively looked at a bunch of patients and tried to figure out at what age range you should be doing closed reduction or open reduction or open reduction plus pelvic osteotomy to decrease the risk of needing a second surgery during childhood. And so uh, you guys want to take a guess at what ages are you, if you perform those procedures, are you most likely to not need another surgery as a child? Sorry, can you, can you frame that question? Yeah, if, do you want to do open reduction, closed reduction, and open reduction with a pelvic osteotomy, sort of three separate options? Do you want to do those younger or older in order to avoid having a, a second surgery as a child? Oh, I think the younger you are, the quicker you restore that congruity, the more likely you are to have more typical hip development, although it's not foolproof. But I generally think our success rates of avoiding a secondary operation are, are better if you get the, get the ball in the socket sooner. So I'll do an open reduction and a salt osteotomy. If this is the question, I'll, do, I'll always do that routinely after 18 months. And then before 18 months, we'll have some sort of crack up initially close reduction up to about a year and then then some sort of you know uh, open reduction uh, between a year and 18 months so i think that's that's basically what they showed they showed that craig like you said the younger you are when you get the hip back in the socket the less likely you need another surgery so like close reductions they said specifically tend to be most successful before 10 months and open reductions tend to be most successful before 11 and a half months of age but then where that changes is when you add the pelvic osteotomy, they actually found if you're a little bit older when you're getting that pelvic osteotomy, you're less likely to need another surgery. And they they found a cutoff of about 21 and a half months of age, which which you know sort of jibes with the CP literature where we know if you're older, I mean, we're talking more like six years, but we know if you're older, when you get those osteotomies, you're less likely to have a recurrence. So sort of interesting findings, but they they showed that younger closed or open reductions but older pelvic osteotomies tend to avoid needing another surgery. So you're saying if, if you did a pelvic osteotomy on a younger kid, that would be problematic. I, I would imagine it's just that, you know, as the kids get older, that cartilaginous onlog is kind of been smushed a bit more. And I think that there is generally more of a need for pelvic osteotomy for containment and coverage with the older kids and the younger kids. That's usually what uh, that's been, I guess, my observation. But I, I don't, do you think that there's a cutoff here that you can apply, Carter, if you've got a 21 month old kid 
you right. the OR is how that's the issue is that I'm not going to, that's the issue. I'm not going to like delay a hip that needs to get back in the socket based on like cutoff. But if they're over that age, you know, maybe just like if you have a CP kid who's six or older, you feel like it's a little less likely to recur, but that's why we need high level randomized trials to answer these questions. Sounds good. Bring it on. <laughs> All right. I've got uh, one that's um, maybe a bit more exploratory, but it's acute compartment syndrome in pediatric patients on, uh, on ECMO. Uh, this is from the Texas Children's Hospital Group. Their purpose was just to characterize a presentation and diagnosis timeline and outcomes of patients who develop this complication. Um, I'll certainly go over their statistics, but um, I wanted to ask if, if our guest has any experience with compartment syndrome in this situation. I've had a few consults, um, and I think it's a really challenging thing to be consulted about, both in terms of diagnosis and figuring out the optimal treatment, because I don't think this is like the typical compartment syndrome that we're used to, where it's some crush injury and the pressure is too high, and if you release it, you can restore blood flow, or a reperfusion injury, where, again, if you uh, release the compartments, you know you're going to restore blood flow. It's And they comment on this in the article that uh, we're not really sure why some of these patients get uh, ACS. It seems like sometimes it's femoral artery cannulation, like a steel syndrome. Sometimes it's maybe clots. These patients are also co- uh, anticoagulated, and um, they've got systemic pressors on, which are, you know, a lot of times we see this distal necrosis in all four extremities, not just the cannulated extremities. So it's it's a really tough thing to figure out the pathophysiology and how orthopedic surgery might help them. And I think that's been my challenge. I don't know if any of y'all have a better way to think about it, but um, any experience with that, Dan? Only, only to say that we we share we share your problems. Um, and so whenever we go and see these kids, so so often it's a perimortem event, isn't it? Often they they die some point afterwards because you know it's a reflection of how poorly they are and they're they're, they're not perfusing often not just that limb, they're not perfusing every every other organ in their body that well. So whenever we see them, we see them joint with plastics is the a kind of protocol nowadays to say, you know, how are we gonna how can we best address this? You know, what's the where is the vascular issue and what's going on? But it's a you know it's a desperately challenging situation. Here's the uh, Texas Children's Hospital experience. Then they had uh, out of 343 patients getting ECMO, they had 18 five percent essentially who were diagnosed with the acute compartment syndrome. So that's relatively common. Uh, it was a mean 29 hours after starting ECMO. So if you're going to have some sort of uh, surveillance sort of thing, uh, that's probably when you need to be looking is more in this acute subacute phase. Uh, femoral artery cannulation does increase the odds of acute compartment syndrome within an extremity uh, six times. They did fasciotomies on uh, 14 uh, of the 18 patients diagnosed, and it was the mean 1.2 hours after diagnosis, so a very quick response. Still only 29% had healthy muscle at the time of fasciotomies, and the others had very poor muscular findings, uh, and that was associated with a longer duration from diagnosis to fasciotomies. Uh, only about half of their fasciotomy patients actually survived. And so um, that's the other thing that, uh, Dan, you had commented on, that many of these patients are so ill that uh, sometimes maybe that extra morbidity is not worth it. Only one infection, two amputations, four with contractures and nerve damage out of those who got fasciotomies. Uh, There were only three that survived and had no compartment syndrome-related deficits um, so their takeaway is they're unable to conclude whether fasciotomies provide better outcomes, but they're hoping this just increases the awareness about that pathophysiology 
uh, a bit. And so, um, yeah, I think it's a really great exploratory article. Uh, there's a good discussion that talks about the different factors. I encourage others to read this if they think they might encounter this. Although, again, it's really tough to have any good answers. Yet again, Dan, please set up the multi-center ECMO fasciotomy trial. It'd be really helpful. Well, well, I was just going to say, <laughs> this, putting, this one putting would be international. To, yeah, it, ahead, would be an, it would be international, but it would also be amazing. Like, um, you know, it's a really genuine uncertainty. That there's really big, um, a big problem. You know, that death is your death is one of your key outcomes here. Like, this is a trial that we could could deliver across the world together, especially with the ITU guys on board because they've all the, the the intensive care guys on board because they've already got really great trial networks. And so we could, you know, we could tap into that and deliver this on an international basis. Because as you say, it's relatively common in kids on ECMO and it causes so much uncertainty. And lots of equipoise, right? There's um, yeah, yeah. there's not a lot known about this. I would not have a hard time randomizing because um, I, I feel like sometimes the treatment is random already. <laughs> yeah, the treatment is random and, and doing that intervention, you know, as you say, flailing open their leg may just be maybe the, the intervention that actually pushes them over the edge and, and as d- does does make them die. Whereas, you know, perhaps if we didn't just accept the fact they're going to have a dead leg, at least the, the child may live. Uh, you know, I, I really don't know, but but it is a genuine uncertainty. Yeah, great point. Great point. All right, last up, a little a little uh, softer study. It's called an analysis of negative one-star reviews and complaints for PD pods in the U.S. This is from Keith Baldwin at CHOP as senior author. And the team looked through online reviews of pediatric orthopedic surgeons and found negative reviews where they were given one out of five stars. So what would you guys guess are the most common re- reasons that PD pods are given a one-star review online? Not listening. Good guess. Yeah. Yep. I think it's little time when it's surgeon specific, but I actually think a lot of it probably comes from their overall clinic experience, front desk staff, wait times to get seen or non-responsiveness of the call lines and other things uh, that I think really frustrate patients. So the the authors broke it down into two sections, the operative and the non-operative patients. For the non-operative patients, exactly what you guys are getting at, the time spent, you know, spending too little time with the physician and the bedside manner. And then for the surgical patients, uh, it was usually about a disagreement about the treatment plan, which probably goes more to uh, poor communication than it does to a true disagreement. Um, and the second one was uncontrolled pain in the operative patients. So there, th- that's one we should certainly work on. All right. That is all we've got. Dan, thank you so much for taking the time to join us. I say this every show that I learned a lot, but man, I really learned a lot today. This really sort of opened my eyes to a lot of cool research going on. So really appreciate your time. Thank you. I'm really grateful to be here. Thanks. Cheers, guys. Cheers. Cheers.